Clinton. Hello, Nick. How are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. And how are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, we've just been having a lovely conversation with Brian Shannon today, uh, who works for Doncaster Council, but writes a blog on on language uh, in social care. And uh, it, oh, what a fascinating chat that was, really. It's a really important topic, the power of language and how it affects the way we think and behave in, our, in, this, in this world. She mentioned about stories, you know, the structures and the solutions, but we need to tell people what social care is for. She mentions about social care futures. She mentions making it real. But the core element for me, it's about belonging. And uh, the thing that's just popped into my head from the conversation is about fixing the environment, but not fixing people. Mm. So, you know, that's what she left me pondering about how you know um, we can move the culture and the behavior to you know fixing the environment but not fixing people yeah I, I love the way you put that I think and I think framing the right language or more positive progressive language goes a long way to fix that environment doesn't it I think yeah and she made that point about how uh, the power it sits within our own hands sometimes to make these small changes that uh, when kind of multiplied up have a massive, massive impact on the culture and the way things are, are done, really. Welcome, Bryony, to Changing It Up. It's lovely to have you. Hi, both of you. Hi, Nick. Hi, Clinton. It's really lovely to be here. And thank you so much for asking me. I'm really honoured. It's our pleasure. We should be the ones honoured with all the blogs that you write in uh, about language. So yeah. thank you. Which indeed is what we're hoping to find out a lot more about through our conversation today. But as first, Bryony, as you know, as an avid listener to Changing It Up, <laughs> Uh, we always start our uh, podcast interviews with uh, a number of quickfire questions in order to get to know our guests a little better. Um, so I'm going to go with the, uh, the first question, which is, if you could only eat one dish or meal for the rest of your life, Bryony, what would it be? Oh, that's such a hard question. I, I'm quite a foodie and I love cooking and baking and things. So that is a really hard one for me, I think. I think I'm going to go with, it's quite a broad thing, can I go with veggie breakfast that I can then adapt and bring in different foods into that? So I kind of, I always need to have something green on my plate as well. I'm a real kind of, I'm a bit of a lapsed veggie, but I don't eat red meat, but I do really need to have green things. So I I like kind of like brunchy type breakfasts, but I tend to kind of add a bit of greenery into them. An adaptable breakfast that you could add in any number of vegetables into over the course of time. Well, I suppose, I mean, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, you know, we'll, we'll accept that, Clinton, will we? That's, that's quite radi- radical. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Um, Brian, my you. question. <laughs> and if you could only go to one more place on holiday for the rest of your life, where would that be? I do really like holidays on the East Coast, so like Scarborough and Bridlington. But I think the last couple of holidays in the time that we've been allowed to have holidays, we've been to Devon 
and um, had some really lovely family holidays just around kind of um, Totnes, Stoke Fleming, Dartmouth area. Um, yeah, just lovely. I love the, the sea, the light, all of it. So I think I think Devon would be my place. Very nice. How do you like to pass time, Bryony? Do you have any hobbies or particular interests that you uh, pursue? Cooking, baking, reading, enjoy swimming. And particularly when we were in Devon, did a lot of swimming in the sea, avoiding jellyfish, of which there were quite a lot, actually. But um, um, spending time in my garden. I think last year, particularly in, in lockdown, when it was that amazing spring, it was sort of really a reassuring to be in the garden and see nature and kind of see things carrying on and thriving when there was so much uncertainty. So give walks and drinks and coffees with friends. I think that, again, with sort of lockdown and not being able to go into lots of people's houses and different places, just um, spending time outside um, has, has been great. And, yeah, writing, I guess, <laughs> writing my blog as well is uh, something that does... I don't know, I don't really get enough time for, really. I would like to spend a bit more time doing that. Um, but yeah, writing's a real, yeah, it's really brought a lot to me, I think, just having that sort of reflective space and time and it's just an amazing process and it's, and it's kind of connected me with lots of brilliant, fabulous, inspiring people, including yourselves. Oh, oh thank you very much. You're too kind, you're too kind. <laughs> a bit of flattery. <laughs> might stop asking me such hard questions. I'll get you everywhere on. I'm changing it up, certainly. Thank you. <laughs> um, Bryony, my question. Um, what was the last TV show you watched that you really enjoyed? Uh, well, this time of the year, it has to be Strictly. Strictly and Bake Off are my kind of autumnal favourites. <laughs> my go-to, like dark evenings, a bit of the kind of the glitz and the glamour of Strictly and all the costumes and all the dancing is yeah it's just that's my Saturday night sorted <laughs> and then then Bake Off as well it's just like a long-standing <laughs> pleasure and the, and the more highbrow question for me now what was the last book you read <laughs> the last novel I read was The Dutch House by Anne Patchett which was brilliant really really enjoyed that and then I'm at the moment I'm reading a book called The Trampoline Effect I don't know whether you've heard of that um yeah. it's basically about George George Tullock and Sarah Shulman, I think I've got it here in front of me, <laughs> about kind of rehumanising our social systems. So very relevant, and yeah, loads of good good insight in there. And I'm also kind of flicking into I've just treated myself to Nigel Slater's new recipe book, which I'm also reading because I love his writing as well as his recipes. So yeah, normally have a few books on the go. That's really nice. Thank you for, uh, for that. But my questions is the most important question of all of the questions that I'm asking. You've got a million pound to spend in 12 months. What would you do? <laughs> ah, okay, so I don't know. If I was going to be totally selfish and just spend it on myself, I would probably buy a house with a bigger garden and a swimming pool. Um, but I, quite, I do like my house. <laughs> I don't really want to move so I think um I don't know I really like the idea of well sort of crafting creative stuff and have you heard have you seen those human libraries that where um you get sort of borrow a person rather than yeah. a book and find out about their experience and it's a lot about breaking down kind of labels and things I think I'd like that kind of concept but more about sharing skills and really kind of around creativity sort of arts crafts baking gardening so yeah, maybe some sort of like crafty centre library type thing where you could borrow people with different skills and share skills and 
also maybe have a cafe in a garden so you could kind of test out some of the baking that you're learning and growing and yeah it's something really creative I think would be would be quite nice and think about connecting people up not anything that would have those hideous labels like activities or befriending or something like that not a service <laughs> but, um, just something that's very much about connecting people up and that sort of creativity I suppose and curiosity and compassion but all those things that are kind of missing from a lot of our social care world. Interesting I really like that so my question now um, this is the serious part, I think. <laughs> and, um, but I've been very interested in the work that you do, especially your blogs. Why does language matter and how does it affect the way we think and behave? Okay, it's a great question. And I think that, that kind of why does language matter, that was the first kind of the topic of my of my first blog, really. So I think, it, I think it matters precisely from that second part of your question, really, that it does affect the way that we think and we behave. So it's fundamental in that. The word vulnerable is one of my kind of pet, pet hate words, and that um, is a really good example of how it does affect our thinking and our behaviour. So the way it's been used during the pandemic, it's not the term itself that's the problem. I mean, that sort of vulnerability, we're all human, we're all vulnerable. That's, that's not really the issue, but it's the way it's used as a label for people. So that when we talk about vulnerable people or those who are vulnerable, we're kind of immediately creating that sort of sense of immediately thinking about other people and that sort of difference and them and us sort of grouping people, separating people off. And I think people start to lose that kind of sense of individual identity because being kind of just grouped into that, especially that when that term sort of evolves into the, the vulnerable, which has been used quite a lot in the um during the pandemic in the, the press and things and we start kind of ranking people as well and that kind of most vulnerable or too vulnerable or not vulnerable enough and I think that then leads to things that sort of testing testing out that vulnerability so we introduce things like assessments and screening and eligibility determinations so people have to prove how vulnerable they are and all those power dynamics start to come into play and I think that the same as so when we talk about our most vulnerable that the hour in that kind of ownership and control of people that sort of possessive paternalistic um response really and that what we've seen a lot during covid is that kind of language around protecting our most vulnerable um that sort of caring for and doing to people fixing people so that kind of any thought of a person having any choice or control or agency or even rights this kind of has disappeared in fact sort of any thought of a person at all has disappeared in in all of this kind of language and I think with COVID that narrative of heroes as well and that sort of distinction between heroes looking after our most vulnerable wasn't good and I think it gets it gets sort of more sinister as well in terms of those some of those messages in lockdown um like sort of like messages in the press and on Twitter and things about like quarantine the vulnerable, let the rest of us get on with our lives. And there's a newspaper headline called that said Christmas sacrifice to protect the vulnerable. And I think it is that sort of real division, that growing division and that blame, blaming people. Um, and also just that whole thing around kind of the sort of people in power saying it talking, the, the language they were using. So the then health and social care minister Matt Hancock talking about people in social care being uniquely vulnerable. And I think Chris Whitty said that we'd see a higher mortality rate in care homes because this is a very vulnerable group. So that language that suggests that an 
inevitability to deaths um, and it, it kind of distracts us from what is making people vulnerable in those sort of situations and circumstances and all the policies and prejudice and power dynamics and the politics around that, so particularly around COVID with all those kind of decisions about do not attempt resuscitation and um, herd immunity and they can discharge from hospitals to care homes and so a whole load of decisions that were made that actually made people more vulnerable. So I think that it really demonstrates the kind of the power of language in that and the kind of the implications of it. Um, I think in terms of just just paying attention, I think it's really important that we pay attention to the language that we use and that we have time to reflect on it as well. So I think a lot of the words that we use um, in the system that we work in, it's that whole, it's the system, it's those, those words about kind of signposting and screening and triaging and pathways and processes and placements. They're all those kind of languages of transactions and um, sort of moving people through a system. That's that kind of social care sorting office um, that we've talked about, that is that it's just about processes. It's kind of, there's no sense of any connections or relationships in there it's just about those kind of transactions and moving people on moving people through a system and also the kind of the blame side of things as well I talked about it a bit with vulnerable but um that labels we use like challenging and complex and hard to reach refuses to engage difficult I think they're all kind of they're all blaming individual people and they're all kind of taking deflecting attention away from our role in that and the kind of our own attitudes and behaviors and how that kind of causes other people's behaviors and the impact it has on other people's behaviors so I think it I think it sort of language shuts down a lot of things as well and sort of doesn't make room for those conversations so it's really important that we have them I think another I don't know I could tell for ages but it's just one of the other words is around care and the way that we sort of use care so we don't really talk about caring um about people or caring about each other it's very much caring for people and it's kind of care has become that word that we sort of associate with plans and with packages and service delivery so it's kind of home care and day care residential care and it's that sort of idea of care as a destination so people go into care and we place people in care so it's it's not something that we feel <laughs> it's not about caring about people it's sort of doing to people and fixing people. So and so often we've sort of lost the social side of it as well. So there's a lot to talk about care, a lot less talk about social care. And for me, it's the social bit that's the, the kind of the critical fundamental bit, that bit about relationships and friendships and love and belonging. And those are the bits that for me are at the core, but those are the bits that we seem to have lost in that kind of endless focus on just kind of personal care and kind of people surviving rather than actually kind of aspirations and goals and thriving so yeah I think it's I think it's key <laughs> I think it really matters and I think that's a language and kind of change practice change really go hand in hand that we can't we can't really change can't change what we do without changing our language yeah couldn't agree more really fascinating insights there into all of that and I think that's really helpful the way you've articulated that and I think that kind of leads on to my next question really about this is so ingrained, isn't it, this language in, in this sort of um, wider health, social care, housing, sort of support, well-being sort of infrastructure that we have in this country. And I think it must be tough for people who are coming to this realisation, who are part of a part of that system to be able to stand up to it, really, to be able to say, actually, no, I think we need to frame this in, in a different way. 
Um, and that maybe is one of the reasons why things don't change as quickly as we would like them to do. But for those who are thinking that, who are listening to you right now and thinking, yeah, Brian, he's, you know, what she's saying is really resonating with me. What, what do you think are the practical things that people who are working in this world and who engage with this can do to use more positive language in, in this sort of health and social care environment? What, 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 how could people actually move away from that and towards this, this new language, this new narrative that you, you outline? What are the practical things? Yeah, I think that's just picking up on that kind of idea of people coming in and thinking that there's that thing about thinking they have to use a certain language to be heard or to get in. So that kind of they have to have those labels, so kind of complex needs or at risk or vulnerable you kind of have to have those labels which is, makes me really uncomfortable but I think there's some real there's some really basic kind of practical things that we can all do I think I saw something on Twitter I'm on Twitter far too much so I don't read enough books probably but um, there's something on Twitter in the week thing which is I think it was Alex Fox quoting math pots from the caring places gathering um this week which sadly I couldn't get to but it was um he was saying talk like people talk not how services talk so I think that's just a real key just be more human in in how we talk um so stop using the jargon and acronyms and labels if you do anything else <laughs> stop using labels and yeah don't use jargon and acronyms because they're just so damaging I think and, and excluding um a couple of other good like quick easy things if you talk about people talk about people so don't call people service users and customers and clients and referrals and a couple of words that I, that I really really dislike um sort of in that vein are case so the way we talk about people as cases so I'm working with a case or I've just picked up a case and um and those as well so that's I really picked up on that kind of during COVID that those with underlying health conditions or those in care homes or those who are vulnerable. It's really that sort of, those dehumanising terms that really do kind of group and other people and add that layer of distance and detachment. So I think definitely people. Um, and if you're talking about where people live, homes, <laughs> don't use the word home, don't use words like settings and schemes and units and placements and services and facilities because I think if it if it doesn't feel appropriate to call the place that someone's in a home then it's probably not it probably doesn't feel like home to them either and that's sort of that's a like fundamental thing with the um the social care future vision is that living in a place we call home is that's that's what we want that's what we should want for each other um so yeah talk about home and talk about people and just talk about language. I think have those conversations with, with colleagues, with people, ideally with people who draw on social care to get their perspective in these conversations, because so often we don't. And I know, um, I know, for example, Leicester have done some really good work recently, I think, um, looking at their, their language around reviews and the kind of the way that they structure their kind of review forms to capture those conversations, but also um, the letters that they send out when they're looking at reviews so just that um just involving people as with everything if you <laughs> the more people with experience of um drawing on care and support that you can evolve the the better you're going to get at this really because you're getting it get called out which is fine so we should be so we've really 
experienced that in Doncaster. We're doing some work around um, looking at our, our um, people, improving people's experience of their kind of first contact with adults and um, social care in Doncaster. So as part of this, we've had lots of conversations with um, people with experience of um, seeking and drawing on support in Doncaster about what, about what we want to do and how we want to change, but particularly around the, the term itself, the term front door, and what that symbolises in terms of access, because it's front doors used a lot, that kind of front door to services. Um, but it was really picked out, which I was really pleased that we had this conversation early on. Um, we did talk about kind of how it symbolises kind of closed those closed doors and entry criteria and that we'd have these kind of thresholds and we're excluding people, that managing demands, signposting people away. And that's something that we really want to move away from. So it really helps kind of expose those sorts of things that we want to change and we want to shift away from that kind of single access point gateway to services type idea that we really want to kind of it really helped shape our conversations about where we go next and that we want to look to develop a much more sort of local personalized approach that was really focusing on connecting people um, and that really local peer support in that so really getting away from that kind of one size fits all everybody comes through this door if we let you to a much more kind of open accessible approach that's much more about kind of building building those um, connections and relationships and I think one of the other things I'm doing in Doncaster is we're looking at developing our, our sort of wider practice framework and we're starting with that in terms of looking at kind of why we're here because <laughs> I think so often we don't and I think because so much has changed kind of nationally and locally recently especially with COVID it's kind of changed everything I think we need to kind of reevaluate everything really so we've adopted that the social care future vision as our Doncaster vision, that's kind of our, our North Star, really, our guiding light in terms of changing um, and developing our practice. So if anyone's not familiar with Social Care Future, which hopefully everybody listening is familiar with Social Care Future, because <laughs> it is the future, obviously. Um, but that vision, well, the way that we've adopted the vision is we're saying we want Doncaster people to live in the place they call home with the people and things that they love in communities where they look out for one another doing things that matter to them so it's really sort of helping to shift that focus from that kind of traditional transactional assessments for services type of approach to really supporting people to live the lives they choose to lead and that real focus on kind of purpose meaning connection and we're really looking at how we remove the barriers to that so it's not really about it's not changing people it's about changing that sort of wider system um, to make, make space for those conversations. And we're also looking at um, what well, we signed up to the making it real framework. And we're also kind of embedding the be human movement principles into what we're doing. So, which I love, I really love those principles. So um, that kind of real focus, I think that's the sort of heart of them is that treating people as people, not as kind of widgets and cogs in a system, which I think our language at the moment is kind of does treat people as widgets and cogs that sort of real that kind of transactional approach so just things like being kind and trusting people and being more transparent and I think we can I think our language really fits with that that sort of just being more kind and more considerate and more respectful in the language that we use and paying attention to it 
I'm I'm really uh, interest, interested in um, what you said about, you know, some of the transactional language, you know, about screening, assessment, signposting, triage and pathways. So how does this um, marry up with, you know, uh, we're using in the profession strength-based uh, 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 practice. It's a bit, it's it's a, it's at odds. If I was being totally honest, it feels a bit of at odds how when you've just described the backdrop of what the reality is, but we're using new language and words like strength-based practice. How does that fit? Yeah, yeah, great question. It's something. Is I so need to write a blog about this, and I just haven't had a chance. But it's kind of in the back of my mind all the time because I have a real, I do have a real problem with the term strength-based practice because I think it's been you, it's been adopted as we've just been built into what we do, and it's it takes so much more. I mean, it's so much bigger than how it's interpreted. I think if we're really going to work with people it is about seeing people as human beings and being human in how we work with people and I don't think that's I think often it's going to get condensed down into the conversation or it's not even about the conversation we have quite often I think it's just in terms of the support we plan and it's about that kind of looking at what people can do for themselves and what people are connecting people within their communities first before we consider any kind of formal service which is fine, but I don't think that's the be all and end all of the way that we should be practicing. And I think there's so much more about that. In, and I'm not, I think, yes, we definitely need to consider people's strengths and that's, but to do that, it's, we have to think about the language we, we use in how we do that. And so much of our language is so deficit based and our kind of systems rely on labels and rely on putting people in like, sort of putting labels on people that, our systems are built around that really. So you have to have the right label to go down the right pathway to get the right service. We, we just kind of rely on putting people into boxes like that. So I don't think, I think in order to kind of really shift our practice, we have to look much broader than kind of the way that strength-based practice is interpreted at the moment. So I think we have to kind of look at the, how we're making decisions um, and that the decisions are made with the person, by the person, by the by the people important to them, that they are they're at the heart of the decisions when so often they're not at the moment. The decisions are made elsewhere about someone's life, but it's not about it's not the person making the decision. There's somebody else kind of at a higher kind of management levels making decisions. Um, I think it is the way we operate, kind of our sort of the number of handoffs we have in our systems those kind of the processes and referrals so we we don't have space to create those relationships develop those relationships with people and maintain those relationships because it's very kind of moving on all the time there's a lot of pressure to kind of keep moving things on and it's not I don't think it's down to kind of individual workers who want to work differently want to but it's that kind of this whole system that we've built that is so focused on kind of outputs we measure those kind of things in terms of just number like waiting times and um, number of assessments completed and things but we're not measuring the quality and we're not listening to people in terms of what what it looks like for them so I think it's yeah I, I don't know I've, I need to kind of spend more time thinking about the kind of the term strength-based as well I'm not kind of dismissing strength-based working at all 
but I just think it's kind of it's one of those words that's a bit overused and I like like co-production and like um personalization really they're, they're sort of thrown out they they used ubiquitously without the kind of without the practice change behind them and without the kind of value change so I think they they're seen as you can go on a train you can go on like a a half day training course on strength-based practice it's like but it's not it's like a fundamental shift in the whole way that we work and I think that's what I have a problem with that kind of thinking so I would never say that we we change the language and that changes everything it doesn't at all <laughs> like there are a lot there's a lot we can do by changing the language but there's a lot of other change that has to happen on the back of that as well and changing just changing the language is never going to be enough it can make a big difference so things like talking about people rather than service users or cases and things like so just dropping those labels and dropping that jargon will make a huge difference but there's an awful lot of other things that need to change in our wider practice to make how we work a lot more human and to make us feel more human as well I think it's not just about kind of seeing people we support as human but it's about people working in kind of those human services sector feeling more human as well in their jobs they're not feeling like they're kind of just processing people through a system and they've sort of lost their identity of as workers in that system as well they've just become that I wrote a blog fairly recently about kind of that sort of robotic robots that was based on the language of job descriptions and how it is it's just become very much about processing processing cases through and assessing service users that's kind of that's the job and it's not not that's so not the job and it's not not the job that anybody wants to do and it's not the job that people on the kind of the other side of that wants to they're not the workers that people want to be working with because there's no kind of life in that is there it's just so sort of so kind of bland I suppose well thank you Bryony so much for sharing your reflections with us today uh, that's been absolutely fascinating and re really insightful and really inspiring to to hear that and I think those listening to this will will take a lot from that and, um, and thank you as well for the blog that you write and for continuing that uh, to raise this as, a, as an issue because I think um, it's something we continually need to be kind of reflecting on and thinking about in, in every aspect of of our lives regardless of, of, of what we do and where we work so thank you very much for that contribution that you make I'd just like to uh, uh, say thank you for being an ally for, you know, as a person who draws on care and support to try and create and move us towards that North Star that uh, Social Care Future talks about and the practical element of making it real and the I statements and the we statements. So, you know, I just hope um, the uh, social work profession becomes more of an ally with the movement and trying to get to that North Star. So more power to your um, fingers for typing those <laughs> blogs. Really appreciate what you do. Oh, thank you so much. Now, it's been really lovely to talk to you both. Really enjoyed it. So yeah, thank you.